This is the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the show for real estate investors, stock traders, and business owners. We help you keep more of what you earn and protect what you've built. Let's get started. Hey guys, this is Toby Mathis with the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, and I'm joined today by Trent Lee. Welcome, Trent. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, and this is going to be how to how to value a business in five minutes or less. And Trent, it, Trent, are you the largest by volume business broker in the United States, or is is that something that I just heard somewhere that that's not accurate? You know, I hope you heard it because it's true. <laughs> so good, good rumors, good good gossip. So yeah, there's a group called the IBBA, the International Business Broker Association. They're like the governing body for business brokers, kind of like the realtor organization for real estate agents. They track kind of what's going on, what's happening, who's doing what out there. And there are guys who do a lot of bigger deals than I do. Guys mm-hmm. in New York, LA. I mean, there's some there's some really big mergers and acquisition guys. But the last four years in a row, and we're kind of coming up here on the uh, on the on the, the end of this year, and no one's even close. But the last four years in a row, I've been the number one business broker in the country for deal volume, number of closed transactions. Yeah, I really want to hit on that because that sounds like like you, you could go out there and do a billion dollar deal, or you could go a whole bunch of you know a whole bunch of smaller deals. Sounds like you spend your time doing the, a lot of the smaller deals, which yeah, is the, exactly. Is it more rewarding to do that? By the way, because it's it sounds like you're probably like give me an idea of some of the businesses you've you, you you've represented buying and selling. In one sense, yeah, absolutely, it is rewarding. It depends on the dynamics of the buyer and seller. Sometimes. Smaller deals, they're just easier. They go quicker. They're cleaner. Sometimes, if the dynamic between buyer and seller is difficult, and you know, then sometimes it's like, man, that little deal was just as much work as the the big deal. But I'll give you an, an example of some of the transactions that we've done. So, in fact, let me just talk about some of the transactions maybe I'm doing now that are in escrow. Mm-hmm. Small deals. I've got a restaurant absentee owner guy lives in California comes in couple times a month just to kind of check on things. Truly one of those like absentee owner restaurants. There's not a lot of them. Most of them take a little bit more time. That one's uh, in escrow right now for $240,000. And there's deals plenty smaller than that uh, as well. But I've got uh, a a really great trampoline park. In fact, two trampoline parks. um, And you would know them, Toby, here in Las Vegas, uh, one of the bigger trampoline parks non-franchise in escrow right now for $5 million. So that general range is kind of like my sweet spot. We do deals bigger than that. And then we do deals smaller than that. Anything from the little neighborhood pizzeria that might only sell for 60 or $70,000. I've sold plenty of those before. Do those make money? Like they it, do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, which might be investing in the market's crashing, everything else, inflation, this, that, and the other. There's certain things that are kind of recession proof. I remember Dairy Queen has always been like, it's recession proof, right? But is pizza shop, like, like, do you make good money off a of pizza shop? Yeah. So before I answer the question on, on that pizza shop, let me just tell you a funny story. I, we had a Dairy Queen for sale. The buyer, the seller agreed on the price. They finished, buyer finished the due diligence. The buyer and was satisfied with everything. The buyer went to Dairy Queen franchise corporate and failed the training. 
<laughs> and was not able to close the transaction. And I thought to myself, how do you fail? You just got to pull down the lever of ice cream. <laughs> I do not know how they failed the, failed the train. But oh, it's, my God. Uh, what, is, what is like the peanut buster parfait? They kept putting cashews in it or something. <laughs> like, how the heck do you fit? Well, I should. Yeah, I, I don't know. We've laughed about it ever ever since. Uh, but to your question on the on the little pizzerias, those make money. Uh, there's no question about it. You get a small business like that, and we'll talk about this later on here in the next you know, little bit. We'll talk about market multiples. They sell for pretty low market multiples. So yeah, they're making money. If a pizzeria sells for you know, $70,000, $80,000, it might be making forty dollars or $50,000 profit, but it's primarily generating that profit from an owner who's buying himself a job. So they're going in there and working it. And so really, maybe you didn't take much of a salary, but it, may, it pulls out 50 or 60 grand. And Yeah, and they, they might take it as distributions or, or however they're, they're... You're your own boss, right? That's the thing. It's the American dream. You get a few of those mm-hmm. and you're doing all right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What's the, uh, you know, the $10,000 question everybody wants to know is how do you value a business? Do you have any rules of thumb in different industries or just in general that you use? Yeah, so rules of thumb are are like high level, just kind of gut checks. You can kind of get a general idea. What you really want to do, and we can talk about this in in detail, but what you really want to do is look it up by industry. So most business brokers, business appraisers, anyone in the M&A space will have access to what's called basically like a done deals transaction database Mm -hmm. where we can look up in the private market and also in the SBA market. And those multiples change a little bit, right? If someone's getting SBA financing, their tendency is to to pay a little bit more than they could because the bank is paying for it. On the private market, multiples come down a little bit because someone's using their own capital and they're a little bit more savvy with with it. But in SBA... Small business administration loan. So they're backing a loan of a regular bank saying, hey, we got this in case they fail, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so most of these guys, myself included, can look up this database and we look it up by the NAICS code. Like on Toby, you'll know this on the tax return, the, the, the business has some sort of industry standard code where we might look up, for example, I'm, I'm working with a steel fabrication company right now going through evaluation they they're probably at about a 10 million dollar valuation we haven't taken them to market yet but we're just preparing it and we look at other steel fabrication companies what they've sold for and we also make sure to compare it to general size so we're not comparing it to a 150 million dollar steel fabrication company but we're also not comparing it to something too small and so the goal is to find by industry what that market multiple is by average, and then narrow it down by size and then geographic region if we can. And just for people's uh, understanding, when you say market multiple, is that of the EBITDA or the the net profit, something along those lines, or is it the gross revenue? Like, like what what are you using when you're when you're talking about multiples? Yeah, good question. If you don't mind, let me talk a little bit for just a minute on on the three general rules of thumb or three multiples that we're looking at. We're looking at seller's discretionary earnings. And let me, I'll tell you what that is here in a minute, because most business owners really don't, they're not overly familiar with that term. Some are more familiar with the term EBITDA, uh, and, and that's a multiple, a different multiple than the SDE or the seller's discretionary earnings multiple. And then we're looking at, again, high level, the most inaccurate 
type of uh, multiple or percentage is out of the gross revenue, how much percentage-wise, what are we looking at? And so that's, that's what Shark Tank always does. You always see somebody sitting there saying, I want $100,000, 10%. They go, so your business is worth $1 yeah. million. So, you know, let me see what you're making. Making $1 million, you know, how much, da 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 you know, they go down that yeah. path. They're, they're yeah, flying. exactly. Exactly. So let's let's just talk a little bit about seller's discretionary earnings, EBITDA, yeah. multiple, what it is, and and how it works. So mm-hmm. traditionally, seller's discretionary earnings is well. Let me let me maybe take a step back. First and foremost, when I get and I meet with the business owner and I start talking with them about the valuation, I want to look at the last three to five year tax returns, as well as three to five year profit and loss and balance sheet. The reason I want to look at that is I'm trying to what's called normalize the financials, the stability of that business, and look at trends. So with COVID, uh, obviously, it's done and over with for the most part. What we're trying to do is normalize that. Some businesses got killed and just did awful during COVID. Other businesses had a really significant positive bump for COVID. And what we're trying to do is normalize those outline years. The expectation is COVID doesn't happen again, at least we hope it doesn't happen again. And so we're trying to normalize that over a period of three to five years. And so in order to do that, we're going to look at three to five years financials, three to five year tax returns, and then it's called recasting the financials. We're going to make some adjustments or addbacks. So give you a couple examples here. Addbacks would be owner's wages that he's paying himself, W-2 wages, not distributions. We can't add back the distributions, but whatever that owner might be paying himself in distributions. Mm-hmm. If they're following, Toby, your, your, uh, your great advice, maybe there's some family members that they're paying uh, on there from a tax standpoint that may or may not be active in the business. And so we, made, we need to make some adjustments to those non-working family members that are paid through the business. We need to add back depreciation, amortization, and any other expenses that would be considered discretionary to the business, or in other words, owner benefit expenses. The business might be paying for the owner's life insurance. They might be paying for the owner's health insurance, the whole family's health insurance. Mm-hmm. The spouse might have a gas car that they're running, uh, running the or, gas. Yeah. Or a car. Yeah. Or a car. Yeah. yeah. Lower, low, to lower my income last year off of uh, the end of the year, they put it in service, 100% mm-hmm. business. Yeah, so, so all of those things are recasted or added back or adjusted to calculate seller's discretionary earnings. The easiest way to think about calculating seller's discretionary earnings is, for example, Toby, if I owned a business and you bought that business from me, what expenses that I'm running through that business that are to my benefit would go away once I leave the business. And in fact, when you come in, my wages go away. How I'm depreciating might be different than you. My benefits to the family would be different. And so we're trying to take those out and really value the free cash flow of that business. And that that's what's considered seller's discretionary earnings. That has a market multiple, as well as EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, Both of those have multiples and they're different, but in theory, they should be somewhat close. So let me give you just like a a general example. 
let's say there's a business, I'm just making this up, of $6 million gross revenue. Mm-hmm. Let's say the, the, there's a million dollars of seller's discretionary earnings. There's $750,000 of EBITDA. And just a little side note there, seller's discretionary earnings is always typically higher than EBITDA because if the easiest way to think about it is seller's discretionary earnings is basically EBITDA plus one owner's wages added back. Yep. So let's let's call it a million dollars seller's discretionary earnings, $750,000 EBITDA. And we do some market research. We look at the multiples. And again, I'm just making this up. Let's say the in the industry average for this size of business and this type of business is a 3.5 multiple on seller's discretionary earnings, mm-hmm. which is a valuation of 300 or 3.5 million, mm-hmm. or a call it a five multiple of or EBITDA, and that puts the valuation at 3.75. Now we look up the market multiple and let's say on average, these businesses are selling for 58% of the top line revenue. That 58% of top line revenue of 6 million is roughly $4 million. So in theory, between these kind of three ways to measure a business, we're at 3.5 million, we're at 3.75 million, and we're at 4 million. Mm -hmm. So it's a general gut check to say, yeah, you know what, these all kind of match up to the same general range. And then we might take an average of those three valuations and and come up with something right in the middle. But it's more of a sanity check to make sure that all of those multiples add up and something's not significantly off when we're doing those valuations. So we've done three valuations. You have your ball, your ballparks. Is there a ballpark number that you use for a multiple, like on on the EBITDA that you say, hey, you know what, most businesses are going to be a six or seven. I mean, it sounds like a seven years profit, right? You're basically getting back seven years, whatever that business is making ahead of time, if you're the owner. Yeah. So, so kind of going back to the, the intro, how to value your business in five minutes or less. The real goal here is, is quickly calculate what that seller's discretionary earnings is. And most business owners generally will, will have at least kind of a back of the napkin number, idea of what that is. If your business is, is under call it a million dollars of net profit, your multiple is going to be somewhere in kind of that three to five range. Really? If your business is is above that, you know, one million to, you know, call it three or four million, you might be in that five to eight range, depending on the the industry. And then you get above that, you, that's when you start to hear, you know, news articles, someone paid, a, you know, 10 multiple, 12 multiple. It depends on the industry and it depends on the size of the business. But that gives you a general range to really kind of quickly in five minutes or less, calculate what your seller's discretionary earnings is, take a three to five multiple based on your your revenue or somewhere like a five to seven multiple, and you'll get a, a pretty good indication what that value is worth. And you could do that even in with publicly traded companies and stuff too, right? Is that's kind of the PE? Is that is that mm-hmm. you're saying, hey, if we took your net net profit and without getting all the discretionary spending and adding it back in. But you can kind of say stock market's probably what, 20, 23 times. I, I forget the number of what it is right now, but I've seen it 17 times. I've seen it get down into the 10 times. You see the market go through fluctuations. Yeah. And those those type of companies that 
public companies that are doing a significantly higher amount of revenue, the multiples go up. You know, we're at 10 and above easily. And we're also not really dealing with seller's discretionary earnings anymore. Those mm-hmm. primarily do not have, I mean, they strictly are just driven off of EBITDA because they've got very clean financials. There's not a lot of owner's benefits going through those those type of companies. Yeah. But on, on a flip side, let me just uh, maybe uh, something of interest to someone who's listening to this. Let's say now that they understand how market multiples work to t- determine the value of their company, let's say they come up with a valuation of their company at, in this example, you know, we, we said three and a half million to three, kind of 3.75 million. And let's say, you know, their goal is really to be at $5 million. They're close. They're not quite there. Now that they understand how valuations work to calculate the multiple, all they have to do is do simple backwards math to then determine if their goal is to sell it for five million. Mm-hmm. Simply instead of divide, instead of multiply seller's discretionary earnings or EBITDA times the market multiple, take your goal price and simply divide it. And that tells you how much you need to show in annual EBITDA or annual you know, seller's mm-hmm. discretionary earnings to then justify a $5 million valuation. That really gives business owners a pretty good roadmap to say, okay, here's my valuation now. I want to get to here. Instead of blindly just kind of hoping to grow the company, they can really quite simply back into that number and say, divide the my ideal sales price by the market multiple and that's exactly what I need to be uh, what what I need to show from a net profit standpoint and you see that actually happening because people are always gosh I, I wish I had a nickel every time I had a client said I don't want to pay taxes and or you know I want to get it down to zero and I was like well let's what's your intent with it my, if my intent yeah. is to sell something obviously that may not be in your best interest but for what you just said if you need to get some sort of financing obviously that could be a a buzzkill too, if you have no income. So there's always a way. And here's something that's really important for these folks. They they should understand this is my industry. Here's my multiple. Talk to somebody like yourself. Uh, what probably two or three years before they're thinking of selling. Yeah, because the goal is we want to get like I mentioned before, three to five years financial. So one good year doesn't necessarily make or break a company because we want to look at a weighted average over a three to five year period of time. So one killer year doesn't make up for a few bad years over here. We need to tr- we need to even that out and get an average over that uh, kind of three to five year period. Would you be willing to share some of your, the, some of the success stories that you've seen people, hey, so-and-so bought a business? I, I, first off, I'm making a huge assumption that you've probably had the same business get sold more than once. Yes, um, I have m- okay. more than one. Yeah, okay. And then and number two is, have you ever seen somebody kind of build these things with the intent to sell them, sell them, build another one, sell it, build yeah. another one, sell it. And then that's that's kind of yeah. their business. almost like they're a builder instead of building. Yeah, out. absolutely. Absolutely. So I've got I've got a couple of good stories on that on that. Before we touch on that, let me go back to just one thing that I think is relevant for buyers when they look at the valuation of their business before I forget. So now that they understand the the how market multiples work, mm-hmm. I, and I deal with this again, small businesses, you see this often. All, I can't tell you how many times I go into a small business and I look at their financials and we start. I start to educate them on, on what seller's discretionary earnings is, what we're adding back, how we're looking for through their expenses to see what we can justify. 
And I come across the line item. This is a true story, more than one true story. And there's $10,000 of advertising. And they say, oh, you know what? That on the PL statement on the tax returns, it really says advertising, but that was our annual trip to Disneyland for the family that we took. And it's real, you need to add it back. And I'm like, oh, okay, so let's let's just talk about how that affects them. Because there's certain things we can add back. And there's certain things if you're kind of gonna push the limit a yeah. little bit, we can't necessarily add back. But but let me just walk you through the math on this as to how the value that they lose when they do that. So let's say, let's call it this $10,000 annual trip to Disneyland. If they're paying for simple math at a 25% tax rate, they save themselves $2,500 on on taxes. But think about what they did to the value of the business. If we use that five multiple, yeah, they saved themselves $2,500 on taxes, but they lost $50,000 $50,000 in valuation for that company, for that for that business. So there's this dichotomy between minimizing expenses to, to minimize your, or maximizing expenses to minimize your taxes and maximizing the value. I mean, there's got to be a little bit of a, a balance there. And they, especially, they, yeah, go ahead. They're misbehaving no matter what at that point. Like if they're writing off their vacations. Yeah. They, the expense, let's be real. But yeah. that, that, what we see the same thing with small businesses all the time, that they'll just be doing some weird stuff because they don't really have an accountant. They don't really have a bookkeeper. They just like, hey, if I type this into TurboTax or, or yeah. whatever they happen to be using, and it's like, look, the number lowered. <laughs> yeah. And they might have gotten away with it because they didn't get audited or whatever. But you got to think long term. If the goal really is to sell in a couple of years, to your point, Toby, a couple of years to, to get into this point, you want to show as much profit as you can because you're going to make up for it 10 times over when it comes to the valuation. Yep. One so. of you, somebody who's who's setting up and they're buying a business to sell it. We look at it differently from, from a structure standpoint because there's 1202 stock and you're like, hey, if you're going to hold it for five years, you're spending less than 10 million, we could avoid all the capital gains if yeah. we sell the business. If somebody is buying a business or selling a business, there's asset sale versus the this, that, and the other. There's always that sort of stuff that kind of kind of leads it, but then it, they behave much differently when they're going to mm-hmm. sell it because now they're not in a rush to try to write everything off. Yeah. They, they're, they're gladly putting it into salary because, like you said, most buyers are going to say yeah, that's going to go away unless, yeah. unless they're negotiating a a non compete and you're going to stay. Maybe a you know maybe an employment agreement. You're going to stay with the company for three years or something. Then maybe it's relevant but otherwise usually that a lot of the small ones and maybe maybe i'm mistaken but a lot of these people they're not sticking around for any length yeah i I was going to mention that if if you start selling a company for two three four million dollars or more the likelihood of you sticking around for some sort of an earnout or management employment agreement is 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 quite high yeah so that that is common on the small businesses no it's traditionally like hands washed after two or three weeks training transitioning post-closing everyone kind of parts ways and right. and then to, to answer your question before toby you'd asked about selling multiple businesses a couple of times and and some of these guys who buy these up talking about pizzerias there's one pizzeria i literally in the last three years have sold it five times so the one thing i've learned come on you got to tell us about it the one thing i've learned is buyers become sellers and sellers become buyers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, especially entrepreneurs. They 
they're like you and I at heart. You go on vacation for five or six days and all of a sudden you're, you're bored and you can't sit around the beach and drink margaritas and play golf forever. And you're kind of itching to, to do something. So they sell their business. They think they want to play golf all day. And then after a couple of months, six months later, they call me back and want to buy something. And so in this case, what, that, 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 what do you got? I, mean, I, I sold it. This was fun. <laughs> Come on. I'm burning. I, yeah. I got I got yeah. And, and in this case, that pizzeria that, that I sold a bunch of times, it was that exact example I saw, I, I mentioned before, it, it makes depend on kind of who's running it and what they're doing, mm-hmm. 30 to $40,000, $45,000 a year profit. It, it, it's a profitable business. It's owned, bought every single time by kind of a owner that's going to be working in it day to day. And mm-hmm. sometimes people... Um, don't realize how much work restaurants are and want to sell it after a year. And in the case of two examples, health issues or, or family health issues that the pizzeria was fine. They were happy with it. It was exactly what they wanted, but one of them had uh, unfortunately got sick and another one uh, unfortunately had a, a, a child that got sick and it just, it was too tough for them to, mm-hmm. to manage. And so it was a good little steady pizzeria. It's proven itself year after year. It's been there for, I think, 20 plus years. And it's changed hand, hands a bunch of times and still has pretty consistent uh, revenue. So for a small business owner that's looking for a little bit of a steady income, it, it was fine for them. Are they, buying the, yeah. are they buying the company, Trent? Are they buying the shares of the, of the company? Are they buying the assets, including the name or... Some assets, yeah, including assets, including trade name and all the intangible assets, you know, the name, the reputation, right. the goodwill, the social media accounts. Very rarely do we do stock sales unless there's some type of a agreement or I'll give you an example. A couple of weeks ago, I sold a surgical center mm-hmm. uh, here in town, 2.1, if I remember right, 2.1 million. And they had dozens of contracts with hospitals and insurance. And in that case, something like that would be a stock sale just for the sake of, uh, of ease of transition. But most of the time, 99% of the time, these are asset transactions, not stock transactions where the, the seller kind of can limit, the uh, buyer and seller can limit their, their liability as well. Oh, and then I was going to tell you, Toby, as well, because you asked about people buying these companies and building them up and selling them. There's uh, two people I can I can think of uh, that I've worked with over the years, and this is exactly what they do. It's essentially the same as buying and flipping houses. It's just a longer-term play. So mm-hmm. I had uh, one guy, he is in the kind of Jiffy, Meineke, Lube, you know, mm-hmm. that, that industry. He knows it. And so he'll buy these. I sold him a Meineke shop that was really struggling, but because he, kn- he, he knew it well, he knew the location. He knew what problems they they had. It's been been a couple of years. If I remember right, I sold it to him for seventy or eighty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. He kept it for two years, mm-hmm. turned it around, built it into a nice profitable business, and we sold it to we sold it for him for four hundred and thirty thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. A couple of years later, he completely turned that uh, turned that place around. And there's one other gentleman here in town. He's got to own. 20 or 30 companies and he does uh he buys a company big enough in size to put a really good competent manager in place 
puts them on quarterly revenue share. So he gets a nice salary, incentivizes them with quarterly revenue share. And he's got these companies all over that uh, just kind of report to him. And uh, he lets, uh, lets the individual, he, he identifies the operator before he goes and buys the company. So he'll sometimes come to me and say, okay, I've identified my next operator. I need a company to place him in. Okay. And uh, then he'll he'll put him in, and and he's got the right compensation incentivization packet uh, compensation plan for him, and it's worked out well for him. So there's definitely an opportunity there. It's just a longer term play. Have you seen families do that? Where like, hey, mom and dad are really good at this, and they have kids they're trying to train, and they don't want to just hand over the businesses to the kids. So they like, hey, I'll buy you a business. This this is the one you're going to run. Kid two, hey, you can run this one. Kid three, hey, you can run this one. Have you seen anybody do that? I've seen parents buy one child a business. I have not come across like parents buying each child a business. That that's the family I need to meet because then I can find a business for each one of the kids. <laughs> if they have ten kids, you'd be doing just great. Yeah, yeah, but I, I do see plenty of parents who have bought businesses for their kids. In fact, I had one probably been about a year that he said basically gave the, the son the option look you can go and do your your call pay for your college education or I'll, I'll buy you a business and mm-hmm. we we sold him a business and and uh, he's quite happy with it I, I don't know if that was the right decision uh, for for him or, or not it's not my 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 spot to say but it, it worked out well for him at least uh, that I'm aware of you remember the kind of business it was? Like, what are these restaurants? Is it, this that one was a restaurant? Yeah, it's it's interesting. You see the different skills as people, you know, like all this fun stuff. Send them to college where they get they're paying someone to try to teach them and give them a credential, or buy them an actual business where they you know they're going to learn the skill or they're going to fail at it. In which case, mm-hmm. send them to college. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it uh, that one. I mean, doing something like that, you really have to find some sort of industry where someone without a lot of experience can can kind of slide into it without a high degree of failure. There's yeah. there's some other really great companies. Um, in fact, I'll I'll tell you uh, another one. We're closing on it this Friday. They do, but you'll know this, Toby. Here in in Las Vegas, a lot of the neighborhoods have gates in front of them, and either a guard or most of them have some like little box, and you can look up and dial the person to get into the neighborhood. They manufacture the gates, and then they service that box. And a great, great company makes six hundred thousand dollars profit per year. Uh, we're in escrow to, to sell. Like I said, this Friday we'll close on it. That would be a harder business for someone to come into without any experience. Because I'll get people who call me all the time, like, hey, I have a little bit of money. I want to buy a business. What do you recommend? And that's a hard question to answer because my my first question to them is, well, what's your background? I mean, some companies like that require contractor licenses. Mm-hmm. They require experience. And so I can't in good, you know, good conscience say, hey, let me tell you about this great company over here if they have no experience in that industry and that one's going to be tougher for, for them to really step in and, and be able to continue to grow without any, any major hiccups. You have to have some favorites though. Like you have to have somewhere you've said like, Oh, this person's going to fail. There's this, this like, Oh my God, how do they get up in the morning and, and figure out how to get out of their own house and they buy something and you're like, Whoa, They've done very, very well at that. Is are there any businesses where you're like, hey, anybody could do it, or that you were kind of you were surprised at somebody that you didn't think would have been capable, and you're like, wow, this person's 
killing it? Yeah, both. Let me, let me tell you about what up on, on the positive side. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you about a couple who bought a little eyelash uh, extension business. So, you know, the, the girls that go in and get the eyelash extensions. Yeah, they had, had several of those, actually. Yeah. Now, talk about that's not like contractual reoccurring revenue, but that is some reoccurring revenue because once the girls go on those eyelash extensions, they they're hard to get off. Mm-hmm. So they have they have people. Trends, and so you're hitting right <laughs> in my heart. <laughs> so oh. these guys, these guys have, I believe, five or six locations now. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, they set up a program with Hyatt Hotels where they have a partnership and they go all around the country and they train these stay-at-home moms how to be eyelash artists. So they teach them how to, from home, do the eyelash extensions. But guess where they buy all all their products from? They got into the manufacturing side. So they have the retail side, they have the education side, they have the manufacturing side. And let me tell you, those guys are killing it millions of dollars in profit not revenue in profit Perfect. per year i was i i was blown away by by how much volume is is happening there wow yeah you know i was in a the uh, entrepreneurs organization years ago and we had one of those it was somebody who had a, a chain of them she didn't have to do a lot It'd be straight up and but she had all these art everybody was going there and it was like 100 bucks a month or something like that or every time mm-hmm. they it was it wasn't a small amount of money that these folks when they get hooked into getting the uh, eyelashes done they sure yeah. do <laughs> yeah yeah it was it was great and then unfortunately i've seen the others i've i've seen the flip side where i'm like are you sure you want to be buying a business are you sure this is the right decision and and some of them have been okay and some of them have have not been okay and i i get the call when they bought a in fact i'll give you a, another poor example this company does the, um, I'm going blank on the term, they water and care for all the indoor live plants in like oh, the malls, yeah. the library. I use one. I use one. I have a, I have a live wall in our, in our rainbow office and about a hundred different separate plants because we had 300 people there and I always believe in live plants, but it was, yeah, an interior garden place where yeah, they, exactly. and they service it. I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Exactly. So we, I sold one. This is probably three years ago or so. So, I mean, it's been long enough where I can kind of see how it's, it's carried out. And it wasn't a, a huge company, but we sold it, if I remember right, for four or $450,000. And unfortunately, the, the buyer just, and, and it was kind of one of those things where I, I, you know, it's not my spot to tell her, hey, I don't think you should be buying a business. But when they're really struggling to fill out basic applications and, mm-hmm. you know, SBA documents, are you going to be able to like operate the business? And, and yeah. unfortunately it didn't, it didn't work out well. And, and they call me usually two or three years later and say, Hey, I need to sell it. And I look at the financials. I'm like, what happened here? This used to be a business that I, that was making some money. Now it's, it's not. You have to figure out what actually makes the money and do that. And a lot of people get in and they say, I'm going to change it. And uh, we see that all the time. I have great ideas. They're doing it wrong. I'm like, well, they're profitable doing it this way. If you want to do wholesale changes, you might just change yourself out of having the profit, which is unfortunate. Yeah. And and that's one of the first things I tell these buyers is whatever you, unless you really have experience in this industry and you know exactly what you're doing, just don't touch anything for six months. 
Just yeah. get get familiar with everything. Get wow. comfortable with everything. Get, you know, build your culture. Build. Let everything stay, and then you can start making some adjustments and improvements. Unless you really know, like you've got experience and you you know immediately where there's issues and where there's problems. And there's certainly lots of opportunities for buyers to do that. But first time buyers, I yeah. usually tell them don't don't rock the boat too much. You can get to that later. It's your Meineke guy. He already knows what his numbers are when you run it right. So he's looking at it going, okay, here's what they're doing wrong. If you're good enough where you can identify that, or if you're a restaurateur and you're like, here's what your food cost should be compared to this or this. Uh, mm-hmm. I always think of Big Tap or going in and yelling at people that are running bars incorrectly and says, this should be your ratio, or this is this yeah, is how yeah. many drinks you should get out of each bar. Like, you know, he had the numbers in the back of his head so he could identify where there was bad management or bad inventory or bad something he could he, he knew enough but otherwise like most of us if i was trying to learn an industry if i was trying to learn a business and i was buying it i wouldn't have any idea yeah and, and there's there's lots of good educational companies out there for how to run businesses how to grow them and uh, that's one thing i've learned over the years in all the transactions i've done it's very rare that i walk into a business and the business might be good and profitable and fine but despite a decent-sized business or a decent, profit, decently profitable business, where I walk into a business and I think to myself, the seller is on it. I mean, they really are. They really have the systems and the processes and the procedures, and they're maximizing it. Most, again, small businesses, they just don't know how to. They don't even know necessarily what average lifetime value is, or how to begin to calculate it or maximize it. They don't have a database of past customers, you know, the carpet cleaner that's just kind of going from 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 job to job to job, but has done 2,000 jobs over the years and doesn't have any type of a Remarkable. program to return and and maintenance and referral program. It's so it's it's often where I see a lot of business owners that have tremendous amount of profit that they're leaving on the table by mm-hmm. just not really being Good. I mean, the e-myth strategy, right? Of, of they get so caught up in working in the business that they're not working on the business. Hundred percent. I was just thinking that uh, part of it is just grabbing them, but they're but they're happy. They may be in the pizza mm-hmm. shop and they're making yeah. 30, 40 grand, and yeah, they could be making a hundred, but they're happy making pizzas. Or I think in the e-myth, it was pie shop. They're happy making mm-hmm. pie. They work in their pizza shop, and they're never going to make much money at it, but they love making pie. Yeah, and the same thing applies to some mm. business owners making three or four hundred thousand dollars profit. Mm. It's, it's still a good, good little business. That honestly, if you started increasing your number of leads and your conversion and your cost per transaction and your average lifetime value, you started increasing each of these by just five or ten percent. All of a sudden, it doubles the 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 size of the business because it incre- these incremental changes just make a huge impact. But they're not necessarily even tracking that stuff to begin to know how to measure it and what to do to increase it. There's a lot of val- value and opportunity there. There's groups that come in there and do that. I, I keep thinking like we have a, a Spartan that does the self storage and. They're, they're, I think it's life storage is, is what their brand is. And they go out there and they put their technology right on. They find anybody that has a storage facility and they look and say, hey, how much of your actual square footage are you using? How much is being used by the family, by the manager that's living there? Let's get rid of the manager that's living there. Let's get rid of all the family stuff. We'll put the tech on it. Now we, we just saved on personnel cost and their net goes up. And then they sell it because the net just went up and you get a multiple of five, six, seven times, whatever it is. Yeah. And they're like, hey, two years later, we can we can double our money. 
And then let's go find another one and do it again. And it's always a small mom and pop where they're doing things that they're happy with, they're comfortable with, but it's not the most efficient method. Yeah. And, and then you see the, who's the guy on TV, the Leonid, what is it? The uh, Marcus Limonis? Yeah. No, no, Marcus. Uh, yeah. Marcus is his first name. I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. The prophet. I love that one. Yeah, because you just described him. He comes in and he goes, oh, we could do this, you know, but but if I'm going to invest, we're going to do it my way. I, I, I actually like that better than than Shark Tank, because you actually get to get in the business and see their operations and see really what sort of operational changes and efficiencies he's putting in place. I, I do like that one a lot. He's just like, how do we scale? How do we scale? How do we increase our net? I think of everything that you said, first off, thanks for coming in and just Chit chatting is this is always enlightening. And I've known Trent for years. So I always, and I could tell you if you're looking for a business, you don't need to look any further. Call Trent and I'll, you, I'll put your Appreciate number. On. That. He knows what he's talking about, guys. But I think it helps somebody identify where the actual value in their business is. Like when we're looking at real estate, it's the same thing. You're like, trust your numbers. I have a stupid saying. I always say there's only three rules or anything financial planning, which is calculate, calculate, calculate. You know, and I beat it into people. It's like the numbers don't lie. Everybody else does. But that uh, whenever I see those shows, I realize how annoying it is when you have somebody who's a a numbers denier. Like they don't want to see the numbers. This is what it feels like. This They always use, uh, you know, a lot of touchy terms. And and I'm like, man, but the numbers don't care about your feelings. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So if you're going to sell it, you're going to need a guy like Trent. And Trent's going to probably say the same thing, which is, they're going to buy it on a multiple. Yeah. And they're not going to pay for potential. I see that all the time. Seller comes in and says, man, my business, if I if I put more time in my business or if I did this, it really could be something. And I'm like, well, great. We're going to market it for what it could be, but we're not going to value it for what, you know, hypothetically could be. I mean, someone's going to pay, someone's going to buy it for potential, but they're not going to pay for unrealized potential. They're going to pay for historical performance. Yeah. Why would they pay you for something that you haven't done yet? But if I did, it would be worth this. Fantastic. Do that for two years. Yeah. And then call me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. Speaking of calling you, how do people get a hold of you, Trent? Uh, My email address is Trent at fcbb.com stands for first choice business brokers.com and toby as always it's uh, been fun it's always fun to chat with you i appreciate it oh i love the enlightenment and hopefully there's some people out there that say what should i be doing buy a business i i learned running a business like there's different levels that you go at and i used to have a really good mentor he said businesses under a million bucks are different than million to 10 million which are different than 10 million to 100 million and you say, oh, how do you learn how to run them? And he goes, you run them. Yeah. Sometimes it's going out there, get yourself something. When I wanted to work with clients, I wanted to know what they're doing. I opened up retail stores. I wanted to see what it's like to run them. It was hard. Yeah, yeah. Buy real estate when I deal with real estate investors. It's hard. Lots of nuances. But you know how you learn to do it? Just you do, do it. it. Yep. Yep. So yep. And I, I think Trent could probably get you in right. And then if you build it up or you get tired or you have second thoughts, he could probably get you out right too. <laughs> That's that's right. You probably That's have right. a line. You have a line right now because uh, everybody's like, what are we going to do with inflation? You got to get out there and got to have some, uh, you can't just invest it in something that's going to devalue in, in businesses. One of the few places where you can increase your value. Yeah. And that's one thing that will beat inflation. A good business properly run will almost always beat out inflation. Yep. And I think Warren Buffett would agree with you. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Thanks. Trent. All right. 
Thanks. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode. 